too. Ghoulish tendencies. <laughs> I'm Gabby. I'm Kim. And we like to talk about all things ghoulish, spooky, haunted, the darker side of things, including true crime uh, and a lot of true crime that has ghost stories and the unexplained and mystery and lore and all of that fabulous stuff. And speaking of mystery, an unsolved mystery. Unsolved Mysteries was my favorite show when I was a kid. Well, my favorite show is X-Files, so we're right along the same lines. I mean, but like, see, I was a... I, well, I guess, no, I was a kid with X-Files, too. Yeah, so was uh, I. Yeah. yeah. It's, it terrified most, but I was intrigued, you know? And I understand exactly. it on a whole other level now as an adult. And it's even better now. <laughs> I appreciate it more as an adult. Oh, my God. The love struggle between Mulder and Scully and just them, like, hovering over each other's lips and not kissing makes me want to throw things at a TV. So I'll continue <laughs> to watch it forever. Um, however, having said that... However. This topic today is kind of an X-Files-y topic. It is. Well, didn't the X-Files do an episode that was kind of in this realm, too? So there was an X-Files episode that was inspired by this topic, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't necessarily about this topic, per se. Right, But it has lots of parallels that definitely went down a rabbit hole of... UFOs and aliens that this one does not go down. Wait, so, speaking of, I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't mention that the Pentagon released UFO videos. Wait, when? Really? <laughs> yeah, like like yesterday. Did you not see <gasps> that? No. So the US Department of Defense released um I think it was three videos that they had declassified that show as they put it, quote unexplained aerial phenomena get out of town no way yeah no seriously they there were ones that I, I guess they're videos that had been leaked before but they confirmed that they were real were these the ones that were found on naval ships uh i believe these were ones from uh, fighter pilots uh and it showed like there's there's one that shows um i think it's a round object that's like hovering above the water. Yes. And uh, I, there's one where you can hear the pilot saying something. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me. Um, but I... But it was confirmed. They released it. They released them. They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these videos are legit in the sense that when... I mean, they're showing UFOs in the true definition of the word. They're Not showing UFOs... Yeah, things that we cannot explain. Unidentified flying objects. They do not know what these objects mm. are. But... I, I feel like they just kind of were like, poof, here you go. With no fanfare, nothing, in the midst of everything that's happening, and that people are not reacting as extreme as they should be. What a time to be alive, man. What a time, what to, a be alive. time to be alive. I'm not mad at it. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I love a good unsolved mystery, and I know you do too, Kim. Oh, yes, but, you much. know, I'm going to veer away from the UFO topic for a split Sorry. second. But thank you for bringing that up because that just made my day. And now I have something new to research when we get off this podcast recording. Mm-hmm. But our topic for today is the Dietlov Pass, the unsolved mystery of the Dietlov Pass. 
And this story is incredibly compelling. It's something that I've heard about on a couple different podcasts over the years. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found out about it originally. And then in digging deep and pulling a Kim and, you know, going down the (laughs) rabbit hole, found out some really fascinating information. So here goes. All right. In early February, 1959, nine expert hikers went on what they thought was a challenging but fun hiking expedition into the Ural Mountains, but they would never return. Their deaths were tragic and cryptic as the circumstances behind their deaths have never been fully explained. This is a quote. Their bodies were eventually found roughly a mile away from their campsite in separate locations, half-dressed in sub-zero temperatures. Some were found face down in the snow, others in the fetal position, and some in a ravine clutching to one another, nearly all without their shoes, end quote. The Dietlov Pass case remains unsolved. It's legit like a case out of the X-Files. But this is a choose-your-own-adventure ending, so we're going to talk a lot about different contexts. Um, and I'm going to give you a lot of background info. I'll tell you who the people were. I really wanted to focus this episode on the victims because I feel like oftentimes when we talk about true crime and, you know, mass murders, we don't really dig into the, the background of the people who were affected or like their families or anything like that. So I really wanted to honor the people who did pass away in the Dietlov Pass situation. Um, I'm going to give you some background on each person okay? and we'll go through it, give you like the situation of how it went down and then the aftermath. And then we'll discuss potential ideas of how it happened. Sound awesome. good? Sounds good. All right. So let's talk about who they were. They were students and recent graduates of the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Russia, and they were all in their early twenties. There were nine hikers All of them were greatly familiar with the Siberian wilderness. They were experienced in lengthy ski tours and mountain expeditions, and they were all certified level two hikers. They were all wanting to get their level three certification. Oh, I was going to ask, because I I actually don't know a whole lot about being like a certified hiker, you want to, you want to move up. Like you're not moving to level one because level one is number one. You're moving uh, to up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And level three is actually the highest certification you can get. Oh, so they were already very, expert. very, very skilled. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Like on the utmost skill level. And we'll talk a little bit more about like the, the context as well, but there were seven men and there were two women. And I want to take this moment to apologize in advance and any mispronunciation <laughs> of Russian words, because while I do have Russian in my blood, I do not have it in my vocabulary. So, what? right. So I will try my best and um, please don't judge me. All right. So we have our first person was the leader of the group, which was Igor Dietzlov, which is what the pass is named after. And He was famous at his school for his technical knowledge, which some called encyclopedic, and Mm -hmm. had an ease of command over any situation. This is a quote. Everyone wanted to go on a trip under his leadership, but one had to earn the honor to get in Igor's group. He he was what we like to call a big dill. A big dill pickle? Big dill pickle. 
you know, I got to throw in the puns. All right. <laughs> now the next person was referred to as Zena, and we're going to call her Zena. Or your princess. Spelled differently, not oh. with an X-E-N-A. This is with a Z-I-N-A. <sighs> Fine. I know. I'm sorry, but she might as well have been a damn warrior princess in this situation. So her full name was Zenaida Kolmogorva, referred to as Zena. She was a bit of a tomboy, uh, but she was lively and she was bright. And several of her companions had crushes on her. Aww. So she didn't look very girly at all, though. She was just like one of the dudes. And I believe she was like 21, 22. She was young. Mm-hmm. The next person was Lyudmila Dubinina. And she went by Lyuda. And she was 20. She was the youngest person in the group. And she studied construction industry economics. Oh, cool. Apparently, she had a really high pain tolerance because on one of her hiking trips, she actually got shot in the leg. What? Accidentally by one of her idiot co-hikers who mishandled a hunting rifle. And they had to carry her... (laughs) for many miles and apparently she was the one cracking the jokes the whole time and trying to keep everyone in good spirits so that says a lot about her and she was considered to be a fervent communist which in that Mm. time in russia that's a very i was gonna say that's what you should be right (laughs) right yeah you should you should have been one at that time again 1959 russia right so the next person was Yuri Yudin, and I will give you a heads up. There are three Yuris, so we're going to go by last names for the Yuris. Um, Yuri Yudin, he actually suffered from some pretty horrible illnesses in his life and mm. had a lot of chronic illnesses. He had rheumatism, a heart Ooh. condition, chronic knee, and chronic back pain. However, he actually loved hiking he was taken out of school for a long period of time to try to heal, but took to hiking because it rejuvenated him and oh. it restored his vitality, apparently. Hmm. And ironically, his role in this hiking group was to handle the medication, which I thought... <laughs> I, was, I suppose he, he had experience. He probably needed most of it, to be honest. But yeah, he, he was the one who handled the medication. That's impressive, though. I mean, that's especially... Uh, uh, some of those conditions can't make hiking easy. <gasps> No, so good for quite good hard. Time. Yuri Yudin is actually the only surviving member of the group. And the reason why he's the only surviving member is because he didn't actually go on the entire trip. So the team, and I'll talk about this in a bit, they had to go to multiple different places and stay in multiple places overnight to get from like a train to a truck just to get to their destination. And he actually went with them on every single route to get to their point that would kick them off into the mountains. And once he got to the last point, he was in such severe back pain that he knew that if he went, he would hinder the entire group and possibly not survive. Mm. So he pulled out and said he was going to head back and let the rest of the group go on without him. So he's the only one I was going to say that that saved lived. his life, didn't it? Yeah, I, crazy enough. His reasoning to not go was because he didn't want to die. Well. And then everybody <laughs> else died. So that's kind of nuts. Anyway, that's Yuri Yudin. Then there's Yuri Durashenko. 
and he just goes by Doroshenko. So you're going to know who that is. Mm -hmm. He studied radio engineering with Zena and Igor. And he actually chased off a bear on a camping trip with nothing but a hammer, which I love. That's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) I would love to go camping with uh, Yuri Doroshenko because he seems kind of like a badass. Kind of badass, yeah. Right? Badass. He's a total badass. I love it's that. like bedazzled, but you know, cooler. <laughs> bedazzled. Bedazzled. <laughs> oh my God. So bad. <sighs> All right. Then there's our third Yuri. Yuri Krivonyshenko. I think I butchered that. I'm sorry. Uh, but he actually went by Georgie, which I can pronounce. So we're going to call him Georgie. There you go. Georgie was the resident jester and musician. Apparently, he was, quote, Xena with pants. So, I love that. Uh, I don't know why. That's just funny to me. Because Xena also wore pants. So, why is he Xena with pants? Why is he Xena with pants? Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't fully... Uh, that doesn't fully... I just like the quote. I think it's cute. <laughs> it is cute. Um, so, that's Georgie. And he was a student of construction and hydraulics. Hmm. Then there is Alexander Kolevatov. And he studied nuclear physics... He smoked an antique pipe and was intensively private. We also have Rustem Lobodin, and he went by Rustic, but Rustic with a K. So he was probably like the hipster of the group. Uh, Ironically (laughs) enough, (laughs) he was the group's rich kid and was the son of uh, affluent professors. However, he was very humble and unpretentious. And he earned a degree in mechanical engineering and was very musically gifted. They all sound kind of awesome. Like, I want right? to hang out with them. That's the goal. I'm making you want to hang out with this group of people. So you <laughs> they, have no, lots they, of they legit, like, they sound like really accomplished, uh, like, just smart, cool people. They absolutely were. And there's more. There's Nicolay. Okay, so this guy's got a French last name, so I'm going to also screw this one up. Oh, I might be able to do this one, though. Nicolet Thibault Brinol. Brinol? What she said. Yeah. Uh, who went by Kolya. K-O-L-Y-A was his nickname. Hmm. And he earned a degree in industrial civil construction. And he was the great-grandson of a French immigrant, hence the French last name. But he grew up in Russia. And the last person was Alexander Zolotaryov. And Alexander Zolotaryov would go by Sasha. And Sasha is going to be Kim's favorite person. Oh, Sasha. Sasha was actually not a student. He was a local hiking instructor and was a valuable addition to the team. He was 37 years old and a World War II veteran. So he also was... Badass. Badass. But he was more badass because he had a mouth full of gold teeth. Nice. And had several tattoos. And you know who would approve of his tattoos? Who? Dwight K. Schrute. Because he had tattoos. Battlestar Galactica? He had tattoos of beats on his right forearm. Yeah, he did. So Sasha. Sasha. Would have had a great time, right? I feel so, like he was my soulmate. That's why I told you he'd be your favorite. Okay, so oh, that's Sasha. Sasha. So that's a list of 10 people, but because Yuri Yudin stayed back, it was a total of nine. 
So this is a quote. Also, just FYI, the quotes that I'm using are from a book that I read called Dead Mountain. And we'll put it in the references. And it has a lot of really wonderful information in it. It's written by a guy who's an American who did all this research on this topic and then actually went to Russia to do more research and did a couple trips there. Well, he actually talked to Yuri Yudin, which is really crazy. Mm. Oh, because he's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And this happened, I think this happened in like 2012. So it's pretty recent. I'm going Um, to steal your book. Yes. Book recommendation. We're not even at Creepy Critics Corner yet, but there you go. Um, But that's where I'm getting a lot of these quotes. So I just wanted to give you that heads up. So this is a quote. In the mid to late 1950s, for the first time in decades, young Russians felt a renewed sense of promise. Sports, the arts, technology, and accessible education were all part of this new optimism. It was a hopeful period that wouldn't recur in Russian history until the fall of the Soviet Union some three decades later. By Soviet standards, it was an exhilarating time to be young, physically fit, and intellectually curious. The 10 members of the Dyatlov group were all of these. Yuri Yudin stated that women were on equal footing with men. Within the team, there was no gender. We were all equal in everything. We had a strict code of ethics and discipline. At that time, the most important goal was the spirit of being together as a team and overcoming the distance. Don't you love that? I think that was so sweet. That's really nice. Oh, Yuri. So let's talk about their trip. They departed from Sverdlovsk on an expedition to Otorten Mountain in the Northern Urals. And during this time of year, it was considered to be the highest difficulty of mountaineering. It was winter. And with the goal of coming right back, they were going to travel one week there and travel one week back. So they knew it was going to be about two weeks-ish. And Igor had told his friends and family to start worrying if they didn't hear from anyone in more than two weeks. So he actually talked to people beforehand just to give them a heads up, like, hey, we're going to be gone. This is our trip. This is what we're planning. But they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have any kind of technology to communicate. And they were very far from any stations that would be able to communicate for them. So... Mm -hmm. They just gave him a heads up. And on January 31st, about a week into traveling, Mm -hmm. they stopped at the foot of the mountain and built a supply shack because they knew on their way back they were going to need more supplies and they didn't want to have to carry it all with them there and back. It would be easier to lighten the load. So they built a supply shack, stored all their supplies that they would need on their trip back, and they just ditched whatever they didn't need. That day weather started to get bad. I really wanted to get like sound effects of wind (laughs) and put it on here just because it's going to be pretty brutal. Just you I can do it. I'll be your Foley artist. Ooh, just give me the chills. I love it. Ooh, it got real chilly in here, guys. (laughs) Anyway, they knew at that point that the trip was actually going to take longer than two weeks because it was more and more challenging to walk in the snow. Mm. So this is about 10 days into their trip. Mm -hmm. Initially, they were heading east, but because of their challenging visibility from what seemed to be a blizzard, they got off track. They ended up heading west accidentally. Um, And because they started heading west, they were not on the same path that they thought they were on, therefore putting them off track even further did they realize that they were off track do we know 
they realized that they were off track, but were far off track before they realized it. Mm. So it was going to take more time to either backtrack or go around the other side of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they were on a different side of the mountain than they anticipated that they were on, if that makes sense. Yeah. So on February 1st, they reached Holachal. Mm-hmm. I think I pronounced that right. <laughs> That's the name of the mountain. And the indigenous people of that region were called the Mansia. And the meaning of Holachal was dead mountain. That's the name of that mountain. Ooh. Which is very intriguing because you know that it was already named that before these hikers went on this hike, right? Did it have a reputation or was that just like dead man's pass kind of thing? So that's an interesting question because I wondered the same thing. Mm-hmm. And apparently the reason the native people named it that was because it was a very bare mountain. Like bare as in naked, not as in oh, the clears. Okay. And it didn't have a ton of vegetation on it. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing on the mountain. So they called it Dead Mountain because it didn't have a lot of life. Right, right, right. Plant and animal life on it. Not because people had died. <laughs> to our knowledge. So right. we don't know. But from what we can see now, that's why it's called that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The Mansia were the indigenous people and language of that region. And they actually occupied sections of the Ural Mountains and Northwest Siberia, just FYI. Okay. So they ended up setting up camp a few meters from the peak of that mountain. Mm -hmm. So they're on a a tilt of the mountain on a bare spot where there's no vegetation, just Mm -hmm. open space. So you have to put yourself in their shoes. There's this crazy blizzard happening and they're setting up camp on the side of a freaking mountain, which in and of itself does not seem like the best of ideas, right? No, (laughs) that would be a no. We are in agreement of that. Mm-hmm. The team had documented literally everything up until this point. Um, mm-hmm. The reason why they documented everything was because, like we were talking about that hiking level, they wanted to get their level three status. Oh, yeah. And in order to get it, you have to have proof. You have to have mm. evidence. 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 So you have to have documentation. So they were taking photos, they were writing in a journal and documenting everything that was going on. And Mm -hmm. there's actually a ton of photos of this trip in the book, Dead Mountain. So I'll be posting some to the Instagram too. So the team documented everything right. And uh, Dietzlov's last document of their journey in their journal was as follows. It's hard to imagine such a cozy place anywhere on the ridge. And under the piercing howls of the wind and hundreds of kilometers from any settlements. And that is the last thing that they wrote mm. in their journal. Oh, jeez. On February 2nd, something unknown transpired, sending them fleeing from their shelter into the negative 22 degree Fahrenheit bitter cold mm. into their untimely demise. Mm. So that's what we know up until this point. Mm-hmm. Their friends and their family didn't hear from them for three weeks, so they're worried. They send mm-hmm. out a request to see if they can get search planes on February 17th, but they're declined. Uh. It only took them three days <laughs> to get approved. So now on February 20th, the search party is finally sent out. Everybody's mm-hmm. freaked out. Everybody's worried. And it took six days for the searchers to find the camp. So on February 26th, all belongings were found set up at the campsite as if mm-hmm. they were untouched. And 
the only thing that looked disturbed was the actual tent. It was slashed open with a knife from the inside on the back end of the tent. And so parts of it were flapping, but everything on the the interior. From the inside, though. So initially, they didn't know. But after research, it was cut open from the inside. Hmm. Okay. Now, when I did my research on this, there were some conflicting moments of cut from the outside, cut from the inside. Right. But the most legitimate sources said cut from the inside. Um, initially they thought it was cut from the outside and then later they discovered it was cut from the inside. So it seemed kind of strange that that would be like that. They found shoes, they found Mm -hmm. everyone's stuff inside the tent and there were nine sets of footprints around the campsite, Mm. but they were spaced out in a way that was suggested that they left in a calm, orderly manner versus Mm. running away. So you generally can tell by the stride Mm -hmm. if someone's running, if someone's like, frantic or if it's just like calm walking and what was even weirder was that the footprints were of like feet not of shoes Hmm. so it suggested that they were not wearing their shoes Mm -hmm. and they followed the path to a makeshift campfire and there they found two bodies Hmm. this makeshift campfire was um right next to a couple trees Mm -hmm. and the two bodies that they found were the Yuri's, Doroshenko and Georgie. They were found severely underdressed. Neither of them were wearing jackets, shoes, mm. or socks. Mm. They were barefoot. No mm. pants, no hats. They were literally just in nightshirts and underwear. The clothes on both of the bodies that were left were shredded. It left a lot of their skin showing, and all of their skin that was showing was discolored. So Doroshenko was lying face down. Mm-hmm. Georgie was lying face up. His eyes and mouth were missing, supposedly eaten by animals or a mm-hmm. bird. Somehow it insinuated that they were hiding from something. One of my sources said this, and I thought that was an interesting thing. So the tree next to their makeshift fire oddly had missing branches at the bottom half, which you would think that maybe they pulled the branches off to make a fire. Mm -hmm. But the broken branches went up to the side of the tree past the height of the people or people's Mm -hmm. heights. Okay, And it kind of, it could make you think a couple things. It could make you think that someone tried to climb this tree and fall down it. Were Mm -hmm. their clothing ripped up because of the tree branches? Mm -hmm. Um, Were they trying to escape something that was chasing them out of a tree? Like, There's all these things that you could think of, right? Right. But it seemed weird that there were that many branches on this particular tree missing. Those are the first two hikers found. The next three hikers were found at various distances from the camp. Still Mm -hmm. underdressed, but not quite as underdressed as the other two. Igor Dyatlov was found first. He was frozen and suspended and clutching a a birch. So as though Mm -hmm. he was reaching for the birch like midair but everything froze around him and Mm. then was buried in snow it was as though he had been fighting the elements until his last breath Zena was the second person found she was laying on her right side twisted and face down her face was covered in blood her right leg was bent as if she was mid-climb before collapsing she was wearing most of her clothes a hat a ski jacket ski pants but no shoes only socks Mm -hmm. apparently with research and investigation. Zena had lasted the longest and was found 850 meters from the tent. Hmm. The next person that was found was Rustic. 
He was face down with his right leg bent beneath him, wearing a checkered shirt, a sweater, ski pants, several pairs of socks, and one shoe with a ski cap still intact on his head. Hmm. Now there's a theory that the wind caused them to run out of the the camp and Uh or be blown from their campsite, which I'll talk about in a minute. But if that were the case, then how is his hat still on? So Mm, that that was an interesting point to note is that he still had his hat on. And his head was deeply discolored and he had sustained blunt force trauma to his head. He was lying midway between Zena and Igor. And apparently, this is so sad, both Rustic and Zena were facing the direction of the tent as if they were working their way up the slope to try to get back Uh to their tent before they collapsed. All of them died of hypothermia, but the question wasn't how they died, but under what circumstances. Now, it took two months to find the rest of the bodies. Mm -hmm. The last four were found on May 4th in the opposite direction from the camp near a creek bed. Two of the men were in a frozen embrace. Three of the four that were found were unidentifiable. So we know that they were men, but we didn't know who was Mm -hmm. who. Who was who because the bodies were too far. Yeah, they were pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. There was one woman, it was Liuda. All of them had sustained trauma. It seemed to be caused by a horrible fall that was comparable to a car crash, but apparently not able to be inflicted by another person. Asterisk, we'll come back to that. Mm. What was super weird was that their clothing was found not on their bodies. Like a majority of the clothing was spread out through the snow. Well, like they had taken it off? Yes. Or something I mean, you, taking their clothes off. Well, I, I will say since they all died of hypothermia, that sometimes a, a symptom of that is thinking that is feeling warm, even though you're the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's potential. That's possibly that. So, I mean, you, people will shed clothing when they're dying of hypothermia. That is a thing. That is a good thing to notate. I love that. <laughs> well, it gets weirder. So okay. Liuda, she was found wearing a cap, again, uh-huh. a hat. How did they have a hat on if it was windy? Um, a yellow undershirt, two sweaters, ski pants, and two socks on one foot. And the other foot was wrapped in a torn sweater. Now, her situation is the weirdest, in my opinion. Her tongue was missing. She had sustained massive thoracic damage with internal hemorrhaging, including that of her right heart ventricle and fractures to nine of her ribs. Oof. Pretty, pretty crazy. So let's talk about this tongue. Could have been cut out. Could have been eaten by animals. Apparently, I'd go with eaten by animals, personally. Aminals? Aminals. I would go with animal crossing with eaten by animals. So... There's that. Now I'm going to jump forward a little bit because there was some research done on this and I just wanted to share. In some uh-huh. of the medical reports, the diaphragm of the mouth and the tongue were missing. So it wasn't uh-huh. just the, the, the tongue, it was the diaphragm of the mouth too. But, but it all, all soft tissue, right? Correct. It doesn't say yeah, I mean, how though it was removed. Like it doesn't show, like my question was, was there a, a cut or was it all just like randomly gone? Animals go after soft tissue first because it's easy to... So, I mean, they're going to go after eyes. They're going to go after tongues. They're going to go after the fleshy bits. So the stuff yes. the stuff that that was missing would 
line up with things that small animals particularly like not your 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 wolves or whatever will go after whatever but like a, a little animal yeah i'd go after the tiny the the soft stuff the squishy stuff so that's Sorry. a potential squishy. explanation for sure <laughs> the squishy stuff perfect this is a really really vile episode if you haven't noticed yet uh, we're going to get more vile in just a moment. It's not the vilest we've been. No, nah, we've been worse, guys. We've been yeah, so we've much worse been than so this. So much worse. <laughs> so the bodies were very severely damaged by the snow. And because mm-hmm. they were found near a creek, it was not just like frozen snow. There was melted like Mm, slushy snow so then there's the decomposition that you have with Mm -hmm. that as well now what was super weird was that Liuda's stomach had contained a hundred cubic centimeters of what looked like dark red slimy mass quote-unquote now for those of you who don't know what cubic centimeters are or what a hundred cubic centimeters are because my brain went (laughs) I am not from Russia I have a prop Kim (gasps) <gasps> you have a but will the people see your prop no i'm just for you oh, but this is a you. box i brought Aww. a box for kim to see it's like this the is size a, cute of a, box. a cute little box it's like the box that would hold a coffee mug if you were to wrap it i was gonna like, say like a cup yeah yeah it's like a it's like a travel like a, something that you would ship like a coffee a, mug wrapped in stuff bubble wraps it's wrap, adorable yeah. Adorable. Well, that's the size of 100 cubic centimeters. So mm. think of like a cube, a small coffee mug cube. That stuff was in Liuda's stomach. What did she eat? So what they <laughs> identified as uh, this stuff potentially uh-huh. could have been a mix of blood with uh, digested and undigested food. Well, because I mean, if if there was some kind of organ rupture or if her stomach was bleeding from the impact of the various wounds, mm -hmm. could that have mixed with what she'd eaten? It's potential. And that's why it it could have done that for sure. But then there's the people that are like, UFOs, it's a goo. So anyway, and Kim's making a really great motion on the screen, you guys. Good thing it's an audio medium. Oh, she's double fisting it now. Love (laughs) it. Um. Anywho, uh, that was Luda's situation. A little strange, um, Mm -hmm. but explainable, right? To a certain degree. Yeah, totally. Now the other two, well, two, three, there were three other people. Mm -hmm. Um, Zolotaryov obviously was one of the dudes. You just don't know which is which uh, at this point. But once they identified them, he had five fractured ribs and severe hemorrhaging that -hmm. apparently was inflicted by a large force, quote unquote, while he had still been alive. Kolya Tybalt Brino, I cannot pronounce him. Gesundheit. Yeah, right. Had similar injuries, but to his head. And what's interesting too is that two of the dudes had gaping eye sockets, but you know, if one of them had the soft tissue pulled out, maybe an animal pulled out the eyes as well. You know what loves to go after soft tissue? Crows, man. They're like, really wish you guys could see this. I wish it was a visual medium. Kim is the actress. Thank you, ma'am. That was beautiful. Now, the last of the four, which would have been your friend Sasha, Mm -hmm. had a broken neck, but apparently Mm. cause of death was hypothermia for him. Not the broken neck? Not the broken neck. He lived with a broken neck and then died of hypothermia. Yowza. That's that's pretty brutal. That's that's not cool. So 
three separate funny i don't know why i'm laughing that's it's because we're weird. It's fine. So three separate articles of clothing found on two bodies had radioactivity on them, which was kind of strange initially. Okay. But at first they were unable to determine how the clothes were contaminated. They thought, you know, maybe it could be from natural processes. You're on a mountain. You're in on the a mountain. Sun and in like the sun, for, for sure. Weeks. <laughs> so that's possible. And these bodies mm-hmm. hadn't been found for quite some time. But both people where the bodies that were hosting the clothes that were the most contaminated actually worked at places that had exposure to radioactivity. Uh, So one of them worked uh, at a nuclear material facility and the other one worked at a top secret plutonium production plant. So they could have brought it with them. (laughs) It could have already been on them before they even got there. Yeah, yeah. So Lev Ivanov was the criminal investigator in this case. Mm -hmm. And... He went through all of the courses of investigating this. He went to the location. He looked at the bodies. He did everything as a criminal investigator would. Mm-hmm. And there were lots of different theories that came to him. But on May 28th, he closed the case. And he mm-hmm. said, quote, the cause of death was an unknown compelling force, which the hikers were unable to overcome. That's about as vague as you can get. Absolutely. And sidebar, his personal motto, you want to know what his personal motto was, Kim? Think you'll the like truth it. is out there. Oh. No, that's that's Mulder. Oh, damn. That's I was Fox this close. Mulder. Don't confuse Lev Ivanov with Fox Mulder. Those are two very different people. However, uh, Lev Ivanov said that his personal motto was, I quote, mm-hmm. I am honest, not corrupt, and I sleep well. I like, I like that he has to tell people he's not corrupt. It's like, hey, y'all, I'm not corrupt. And because for me, that's, night. <laughs> I just assume that someone's not corrupt. But you know what makes me think they might be corrupt? What? If they tell me they're not corrupt. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. You're not wrong. Like, it, because the average person doesn't need to make that known. No. They just don't be corrupt well you know clearly uh mr ivanov was not a normal person because he made that very clear so Uh you know this is where i like to call out the shady shit because why would all of these campers who are super high level hikers why Uh would they even in their right mind leave their camp improperly clothed without shoes they've they went a mile Without shoes. I mean, I could think of a couple of reasons. Okay, hold on. Hold on. We're going to get to the reasons. I'm just making a (laughs) statement so we can marinate for a moment. Marinate. At the time of the year, the hikers would have faced strong winds up to 40 miles per hour with a wind chill of negative 40 below zero. Let's go. That's pretty chilly, right? Pretty cold. So why would they abandon their source of safety in negative 20-something degree weather with that type of environment and... Just FYI, once you leave that type of environment and you're exposed, you have six to eight hours to live tops. So initially, you had everybody talking about this case, and there were all these different theories. You had, uh-huh. were there Mancia killers, mysterious armed men, experimental military aircraft, radioactive weapons, snow gnomes. I love that <laughs> one. Um, snow and, gnomes. <laughs> yeah. And UFOs. Of course, right? What about El Nasty? The what, huh? 
El Musty. Well, we'll talk about that guy in a second. But I wanted to throw in a quote here because it was referenced in the book and I thought it was a really great quote to use. And it's a Sherlock Holmes quote. Mm. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So that's the approach. That's legit. Yeah, right? that's legit. So let's talk about some not so realistic theories. The Mansi people attack. Apparently, people thought that they would have attacked. It's their home homeland, right? Maybe you offended someone, did something you shouldn't have done. But uh-huh. apparently, they are only in that area during summertime because it is so cold. In the winter, mm. they go into the forest and they're not even around. So they That's weren't smart. even there. And they're actually like a really peaceful people. So they wouldn't have been aggressive anyway. And they actually offered assistance in the search efforts. So hmm. they honestly would not have done something also their nearest uh-huh. settlement was 60 miles away at this time and oh. they didn't have any hunting got time for that yeah and it's so yeah. far there was no hunting that they ever did there and there were no sacred or religious value lands in that vicinity so literally no mm-hmm. reason for them to be there so that's a no avalanche everybody thought it's a snowy area maybe there's an avalanche uh-huh couple things here, though, is that the tent was still found intact without, with exception of that slit, right? Uh-huh. Um, and all their stuff was still inside. So if there was an avalanche, it would have probably hit that too, and it didn't. So let's do some science. So this is what very, about, Yes. With, with the avalanche, uh-huh. um, would it have been possible... Because the sound of an avalanche travels, particularly in a mountainous area. So I'm so glad that you brought up sound because we're going to come <laughs> back to sound with a pretty uh-huh. honestly like legit possibility. Um, uh-huh. But from an actual avalanche and snow hitting people and killing them, that's what we're going to talk about on this well, particular one. But yeah. Right. Because I, I, I'm thinking not that an avalanche actually hit them. I'm thinking they're experienced hikers. They know the sound of an avalanche. Mm -hmm. And so if there was an avalanche nearby and they're woken suddenly to the sound of what they think is an avalanche on top of them and they quickly exit the tent in their night clothes, not even putting shoes on because ain't nobody got time for that if there's an avalanche, not realizing it was actually further away. Because if you've ever been into the mountains, sound travels and it sounds like it's right next to you, but it could be miles away. And so there could have been an avalanche triggered elsewhere and the sound carried through the mountains and they panicked, and then because it was still blizzarding, they get lost. They can't find their way back. It's possible. Hypothermia. Hypothermia. The reason they die, we already know that. Yes, uh, that's a possibility. Who knows? Anything is possible in this in this situation right now. Anything's possible unless we make it not possible. So, to me, sure, that's possible. Uh, when we're talking about an actual avalanche, though, the slopes "quote unquote" run out, which determines how far the avalanche will flow was 16 degrees from the top of the slope to the tent's location. That is not an, um, that's not a possible way for an avalanche to travel at 16 Mm. degrees. It's too shallow. So it Mm -hmm. would need to be a steeper incline in order for an avalanche to have that type of momentum that would take Uh them out. So Mm. technically speaking, at 16 degrees, it would be nearly impossible for an avalanche to travel half the distance of a football field over such a flat surface. So just to give you an Uh idea of distance. But if an Mm -hmm. avalanche did happen, 
in that area, they would not have mm-hmm. time to even get out. It takes like max 10 seconds for an avalanche. To yeah, happen. it's it's fast. It's fast. Yeah. So the theory would only work if the avalanche could travel at such great distance over a shallow surface and if the tent were not still found standing with its contents in place and if the hikers were not found over a mile away from their campsite. So mm-hmm. for a literal avalanche to happen in that area, hard no. What you're talking right. about, potential. Who knows? Mm-hmm. All right. So that's avalanche. No, in this sense, at least. UFOs. All right. This is my favorite topic. So sightings in the area happened around the time of the incident. Now, these sightings were pretty interesting. We're going to really dig deep in this one because it's about orbs. And you know how much we love talking about orbs, but it's not the same kind of orbs that we're used to talking about. It's a different kind of orb. I love talking about orbs. Right. But the last photo taken with the camera has a weird picture in it. Now, Mm. With the picture, the last photo that was taken has like a lens flare in the center, which you can tell is a lens flare, but then there's like a trail of light that leads in like a angular way away, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's all blurry. You can't really see anything. It could be lots of different things. It could be a rocket. It could be a crashing aircraft. It could be a meteor. It could be a candle. It could be a flashlight. You don't know if it's happening inside the tent. You don't know if it's happening outside of the tent. So like- because also they didn't even put their shoes on. Why would they stop and take a picture? (laughs) Well, that's what I'm saying is that this could be like an arbitrary picture taken of anything. It it could have at any point in time too. Right. we're, we don't even know when this picture was taken. Well, it has to have been taken after their last regular picture that they took of themselves. Right. But we so, don't know that it was necessarily taken in terms of when weird shit started to go down. Like correct. it could have been. Not that Oh, specific. hey, look, a bird. Click. Sure. Let's go to bed, everybody. It was dark though. So you know that it's either at nighttime outside or it's inside the tent. So potentially, if there was a crash landing, hypothetically, let's say there was a UFO crash landing, Mm -hmm. moldering right now, just let me molder. I will let you molder. I will drink my drink. I always let you scully, scully. If there was a crash landing, there would have been evidence of a crash landing. There was no evidence of anything other than footprints of the people that were there. So there's that. Um, Now, a crash landing. Oh, you mean a UFO? Of literally anything. It could have been a UFO or if it, if it was a meteor that crashed or if it was like a, an airplane or something. that If there's anything that crashed around them like that we would notice them, if an airplane crashed. You right, would notice right. it is the point, right? So yeah, there's yeah, nothing yeah. there. Um, now, this fair, is a quote from the book, Dead Mountain. I'm not saying I don't entertain the idea of life existing out there somewhere in this vast universe. But if one is going to fall back on malevolent alien visitors without backing it up with evidence, evidence, one may as well throw ghosts, the hand of God, and devious subterranean gnomes into the mix. Aliens were off the table. Devious subterranean (laughs) Kim has a new favorite quote. (laughs) I'm writing that down. I love it. Now there's also another weird thing. Yeti. Could it have been a Yeti? The Amasti. It's not a Yeti. It's an Amasti. Every region has their own name for what we would refer to as a Yeti or a Bigfoot or whatever. And there are slight differences between each one. In that region, you're looking at the Almasa or the Almasti, which is basically Bigfoot. But I just, we should call him by the name he prefers in that region. Because he told you, Kim. <laughs> because he told me. But technically, if there was a Yeti, maybe maybe that guy chased the two dudes up the tree. 
right? Maybe he chased them up the tree and that's why they tried to climb a tree and had cuts all over themselves. Who knows? I mean, the Almasti are not recorded as being particularly aggressive and at least from what I've read, but you know. So then, you know, even if they are out there, maybe they didn't affect this particular case. So there's that. Then there's also the possibility of high winds, which we talked about. There's the idea that one or two people could have been outside of the tent, maybe, you know, like they had to take a whiz, go outside. And then all of a sudden, a crazy wind took them by surprise. They freak out. They're more clothed than everybody else because they mm. knew they were going outside. Mm-hmm. And then when they freaked out, they might have yelled and then caused everyone else to jump outside to be like, oh my God, what happened? And then get blown away by the wind. Do we know the clothed people, this might be a weird question, but mm-hmm. do we know that they were wearing their clothes? I think it's presumed that they were wearing their own clothes. I didn't see anywhere in the research whether or not the clothes were anyone else's, but they did identify whose clothes were whose by having Yuri Yudin, who didn't mm-hmm. go who, on the trip, right. show up right. when they were doing the search to identify the bodies and to identify the clothing that was displayed well, on the snow. I'm just wondering if like somebody died and they were like, I'm cold, I'm going to take their shirt. Oh, that's a good point. But they were so spread out. So with the exception mm. of the couple people that were sitting together, or like together, together. So the right, more clothed right. people were further away than anybody okay. else. And so okay. I don't think they, I, I mean, I don't know. That's a good question. There's no, there's no way to identify like whether or not they took someone else's clothing. Right, right, right. Because we, yeah. we don't know. Everyone was found so late. We don't know for sure. I mean, who died when essentially like they know based on on decomposition and when they found bodies so do they know if anyone was alive for a significantly longer period of time the only person that they knew lasted the longest was Uh luda in my notes hold on and how much longer i mean like hours or it didn't say because okay. um, that's something I'd be curious about. Did uh, was someone alive for a significant? I mean, even being alive for six to twelve hours—that that's a a reasonable amount of additional time to be alive, and could speak to what happened. Because if you're alive for that much longer afterwards, what were you doing? I know that they couldn't have been alive more than eight hours after the time that they left their camp based on what they determined with the weather. So they said between six to eight hours, they would be dead once they went outside in that type of environment with the clothing that they had. So there's that. So I don't know. It's a good question. So then there's the high winds, right? We're talking about that. Apparently, when they went back to look at the weather that night, it topped out at 40 miles per hour. It didn't go any faster Mm. than 40 miles per hour. And apparently in order to have like hurricane level force or a destructive level of wind, it would have to be 74 miles per hour or higher. So the weather report said, no, we did not have that. So there's that example out the window. Now there is the shady government shit. And the shady government shit goes into a couple different sections. We can talk to armed men. We can talk... Weapons testing and other orbs that are not UFO orbs, but orbs still. And we can also talk rockets. 
and classified stuff. So the armed men. Mm-hmm. I watched this documentary and I'm not sure how like legit it is. So all of this is alleged information. So the next section is allegedly section. His name was Edyard Tumanov. He's a doctor of forensics at Pirogov Russian National Research Medical University. Stated that the injuries sustained by the four um, that had the most injuries were Mm -hmm. sustained during self-defense by hard, blunt objects held by humans. I don't Hmm. know how they got that type of evidence, but somehow they are claiming that. Yeah. Also, there was this weird moment where Zolotaryev predicted that the people going on the hike would become famous for the hike. But that could also him just be like, we're so good. We're going to get level three. We're going to be so famous. You know what I mean? It could be one of those and just happen to like, we'll actually (laughs) die and now you're famous. Um, So it could be that. There was also, um, I saw a couple places people were talking about the fact that they could have potentially been on psychedelic drugs, but these people did not drink. They were virgins. Mm. They were very innocent type people. I don't think they- Straight edge. Basically, they're my people. Um, But Mm -hmm. also, there was no evidence of any kind of drugs in their system. Evidence. Evidence. You know, we like that. Um, So there's that. So I, I say none of those things are true. Because there were only nine sets of footprints. So how were there other people? There's no evidence of any visitors to the tent. Zero reports of escaped prisoners in surrounding camps. But the closest camp was like over 50 miles away. So if someone wanted to come there and mess with them, they'd have to go pretty far in a really crazy weather, right? Mm -hmm. Also, apparently the bodies that were found face down and injured the most near the creek had fallen into a ravine. Um, and the mm. ravine that they fell into would have explained the physical injuries like hemorrhaging and multiple rib fractures and a fractured skull. Uh. So, and this is more technicality for you. That area uh-huh. would have had a 24 foot high precipice with an incline Ooh. of 50 to 60 degrees. Plus it had rocks mm. at the bottom that was covered with snow. So put all those things together and you get, uh, a pretty dangerous situation, which compares to a large directional force, almost like a car crash. So that could be, they just are walking in the black night and they can't see anything and they miss their footing and they fall into this ravine. And snow too. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you never know, but like that seems the most realistic for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that seems really rational. Right. The forensic examiner's conclusion that three of the deaths had been violent is consistent with a lethal fall in the ravine. So the forensic examiner actually said that too. So I'm going to trust that. So this is interesting. The government did some shady shit that made you question them to be like, were you involved? Because why would you do this? (laughs) I mean, Russia. Unless you were involved. So they made it really challenging for their families to give their kids funerals. So initially they actually wanted to leave all of the bodies in the mountain and just leave mm. them buried on the mountain. And the families were like, uh, no, we need to, mm, no, them. thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, we need to like bury our kids. Right. Uh. And they had to wait 10 days after the bodies were discovered just to have a funeral. Oh, geez. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Then they controlled the route of the funeral procession and the families wanted the funeral procession to go through or around the UPI campus where they all went to school. And apparently the government prevented them from doing that because they didn't want to 
draw large crowds. So there was a lot of insinuating that like Hmm. some shady shit was going on. Why are you trying to hide this? Why do you not want to be involved in this? Why can't people see what's going on? I mean, that's suspicious. Right. So that's strange. Hmm. Now there's also weapons testing. The same Hmm. night that the hikers died, there was only one other hiking group also hiking in the area who witnessed, quote, a strange occurrence over the sky in the Ural Mountains in the area of Oroten. They saw a strange phenomena in the evening to the north from their locations, the extremely bright light of some rocket. The light was so bright that even those hikers who were preparing to sleep in tents went out to look at it. The sound of strong thunder came from afar. So that could be a thing. The hiker who claimed this actually was attending Georgie's funeral and he told Georgie's dad and Georgie's dad actually testified this information in the criminal investigation Oh, wow. That was pretty wild. And other groups also saw some weird things going on in February that year. Some local hikers and search volunteers, Georgie Atmananki and Vladimir Shevkunyov, saw quote unquote orbs in the sky over the northern Urals on February 17th. When they first saw it, they thought it was the moon, a white spot in a dark sky at 6 a.m. But there was no moon that morning. And if there was, it would have been on the other side of the mountain. So he said it was a spark lit in the center of the spot. It burned for several seconds steadily, then grew in size, and then swiftly went west. So it moved. So that's weird. I don't know how you could explain that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where some of the UFO identities kind of sit in there. Mm-hmm. But they're also saying that that could have been a form of a rocket and some kind of technology that the government was working with. The weird thing is, is when you're thinking about the, the orbs... A lot of people thought that those caused the deaths or implied the deaths of some of the people. I don't Mm -hmm. know how. Like that connection of how is not there. Magic. Yeah. So here's where it gets weirder. It ties back to the photo. So then people Mm -hmm. wanted to talk about the last photo that was taken that we talked about for UFO references. And Lev Ivanov was, if we go back to him, your your favorite guy who's not (laughs) corrupt. Um, He being the lead investigator of the case, initially denied that the orbs had anything to do with the situation during the investigation. Mm -hmm. It was he who decided the resolution was impacted by an outside force and left it ambiguous on purpose. He made it seem that people caused these deaths at first, but then the government somehow requested him to be in Moscow. And Mm -hmm. after he went to Moscow, he got real quiet real quick and literally told everyone around him who was talking about potential ways that they could have died to quote, hold their tongues and never mention spheres or murder or people attacking them ever again. Hmm. Also shady shit, right? Shady shit. Suspicious. Uh-huh. Now fast forward to 1990. He did an interview and said, I can't tell you for sure whether these orbs were weapons or not, but I'm certain that they were directly related to the deaths of the hikers. Someone wanted to in- intimidate people or to show off power And Mm -hmm. so they did so by killing three hikers. Only those who were inside the orbs know more than me. Whether there were people inside that time or any other time is yet unclear. Interesting that all of a sudden he came forward with that information. Yeah, but I just don't know that I believe him. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that he had all the information. He gathered all the information. He was there. He saw everything firsthand. So like you would think that of all the people that were 
influenced the most by everything going on, he had most access to everything because he also had access to all the government documents. Right. I just think it's shady to be like, I know what happened. These people were murdered, but I'm not going to tell you anything else. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. Like I'm suspicious of that. Cause I'm like, I don't know. That makes me not super believe what you're saying. Well, I don't really believe anything that anyone's saying at this point because there's so many different freaking theories. And the other thing, too, that's super weird about the documents is that Mm -hmm. apparently per Soviet law, criminal case files are supposed to be stored in the prosecutor's office for 25 years. And if no appeals are filed for the case during that time, they can actually legally destroy the case. But the government chose to keep this case around and not destroy it ever. However... In May of 1959, all the documents were shipped to a classified archive and kept hidden for four decades. And they only came out recently. And when they came out, some of the pages and details in the reports were missing, which is also interesting. It is interesting. And she shit. Those are most of the known theories. Doesn't really make me feel confident about any of them. And then I was thinking about like, what could be realistic? And one of the realistic theories that I came across was that there would have been a fire inside of the tent because of their stove. So Mm. they would keep a stove inside of a tent. So hear me out. Here's the theory. If you have an immediate threat inside the tent, you're panicked, you want to get out, right? The exhaust pipe of the internal stove upon taking it apart after dinner caused embers accidentally to reignite and cause an influx of smoke inside the tent or cause a fire inside the tent. And blood being on one of the victim's face could have been caused by smoke inhalation, potentially. Yeah, but my my issue with that is just you leave the tent, you don't run like two miles away. Yeah. Like you, you get out, sure, but you don't, because you're surrounded by snow. Right. The fire is not going to go anywhere after it burns your tent down. So you, sure. you leave the immediate danger. You don't keep running. That to me seems really irrational. I um, agree with you on that one. Yeah. And I think too, like, it's weird to be underdressed and just that far away. I think this theory that I read about said that they were just trying to find the nearest shelter and they were yeah. trying to go toward the trees. And that's why they went a mile was because that was where the closest shelter was. Particularly if there was some external thing that startled them. Yeah. Um, and you're not exactly sure. Like I could see running for a stretch And then stopping and being like, oh, shit, (laughs) we're far from the tent. Something spooked them for sure. Mm -hmm. Something made them leave their tent not ready to leave their tent. Or possibly been sleeping or, yeah. Yeah. But the reason they ran far away is because they were disoriented somehow. Something Mm -hmm. messed them up. Something freaked them out. And the writer of Dead Mountain came up with this theory of infrasound. Do you know what infrasound is? So the infrasound for our listeners who don't know, they're low frequency waves that can cause the eardrum to vibrate the hair cells on the inner ear. And the effect of this is that although the sound may not be audible to the casual listener, the excited hair cells in the inner ear send impulses to the brain. And then this disconnect between the apparent silence and the brain receiving signals from the ear can be really disruptive to the body. It can cause nausea illness, psychological disturbances, even suicide. There's some like crazy stuff that can happen to people from the sound. And there's this theory that 
Boot Rock, which is at the top of Dead Mountain, has a potential responsibility for causing low-frequency sound waves. That's one theory. The other theory is that there's this thing called a Carmen Vortex, and this is an occurrence in fluid dynamics of both liquids and gases that basically causes a small air tornado when wind is of a certain speed that hits a blunt object of a particular shape and size. So think of crazy wind hitting that boot rock can then cause these little small tornadoes. Maybe they get bigger. Maybe the sound that those tornadoes make causes infrasound. And then that sound can affect the people nearby that are camping and cause them to basically lose it, get these headaches, just get super disoriented and not know what to do and not know what's causing it. And that would cause them to run away, freak out, try to get away from that space. And that's why they go a mile out. So that was one of the theories that was brought forward. I don't know if you have anything that you would want to add to that, Kim. It's the theory I I feel like I see most brought up now as being plausible Mm -hmm. um, as a thing that would cause people to leave a safe warm environment suddenly honestly i look at this case and as much as people want to spin it in a like ufo or conspiracy direction i mean i'm I'm not saying there's not the possibility of government interference definitely or withholding but i feel like the cause of death was probably completely natural and uh, unfortunate series of events I agree. And I think too, like we have so much more knowledge now of like physics and things that have come up than they did in 1959. Totally. So like what could have been the Carmen Vortex with infrasound that caused that reaction, that could have been something that they might have been trying to use as a weapon, you know, for like the the Cold War during that time. Like, Uh and maybe that's why it was so top secret. And maybe that's why your friend, the investigator, didn't want to talk about it was because he was probably threatened, you know? Like, mm-hmm. you, you never know, and that's why the shady shit with the government was going on. But mm-hmm. who knows? Choose your own adventure with this one <laughs> because truly it is an adventure for you to choose. Mm-hmm. And that is the Dietzlov Pass Unsolved Mystery. Mm-hmm. The incident, may be, as it's often called. Yes, which may be solved in your mind and in our minds, but yeah, we'll never honestly, really know. I, I, think, I think that it's one that, um, as much as people want to make it sound like something really mystical, I feel like there's a lot of really rational explanations for everything. And I tried to approach it from a rational explanation because I knew you were going to scully everything. So there uh, you go. Scully's got a scully. But I did a little bit of moldering, so thank you. You're welcome. And having said that, welcome to Creepy Critics Corner. <laughs> Creepy Critics Corner. Kim, what have you been watching and listening to? Uh... I will say I have been enjoying some of the various marathons that have been running on the networks. Like there was a Battlestar Galactica marathon yes. that's been running on sci-fi. That was delightful. That show, man, I forgot how good that show was the first couple of seasons. It loses its way a little bit. But the first, um, I don't know, like three and a half seasons are are really phenomenal and and it it's still a good show as it goes on it just you can kind of tell where they stopped planning things oh, no. um 
Psych too. I think I may have said this before. I've been watching Psych on USA. Like it was going out of style. That show, man, I did not appreciate all of the, not just pop culture, but um, I just watched an episode that was a spoof on The Shining. I haven't seen that one. I've seen like two episodes of Psych. My God, it was magnificent. Like their their episode, their Twin Peaks episode, the Shining episode. They they did a Hitchcock kind of uh, feel episode. Like they do these these homages to famous directors and movies and styles. And when I first watched the show. I'd watched the first couple seasons and I think I was in grad school. So I stopped watching. So I'm watching episodes I never saw. And I have to say, I, I am thoroughly enjoying myself. Um, I'll also throw out there the movie, the devil's pass. Oh my gosh. How did we forget to talk about that? I'm sorry. It's it, well, it's a silly movie. It's a silly found footage horror film, but it's, it's solid. And it is a group of filmmakers who are, are trying to recreate what happened to try to investigate and figure it out. And it goes, it kind of takes a turn as we get into the ending and it gets real silly, but it's, it's a, it's a fun, dumb horror film. So if you want a fun, dumb horror film inspired by the events, you can watch the devil's pass. And you know, what's so funny is when I was looking up documentaries about the Dietzlov pass that kept popping up and I was like, no, that's a horror movie. It, that is not a documentary. It is about as fictional as you can get. It is so insanely fictional. Funny. <laughs> oh my gosh. What would you have done if I showed up with all of that as my like reference? <laughs> I would have walked out of the room. <laughs> I would have legit stood up. She would have broken her quarantine, guys. Kim would have broken broken my... I would have walked over (laughs) and been like, get me! (laughs) Not cool, man. Well, I didn't. That's just a joke. But uh, my Creepy Critics Corner, I've been dying to talk about for like... God. (laughs) So the show we're talking about is What We Do in the Shadows, which is one of my all-time favorite shows. It's so comedically wonderful. And a new season just came out recently. And episode two is my favorite thing in the entire world. It's got a ghost moment in it. And if you don't know this show... Basically, the premise is a bunch of vampires who are roommates in Staten Island, and it's based on the movie, What We Do in the Shadows, and it's got a wonderful cast of comedians, and my favorite part of the fact that it's a show is it introduces a new type of vampire, which is an energy vampire, which is a person that will bore you to death and suck all of your energy dry which i hope we're not doing to you via this podcast however it is a wonderful show and if you have not watched it you gotta watch it it's very fun i do enjoy it very much i was a big fan of the movie and uh i very much enjoy the show i love having a good comedy moment in my life so sometimes you got to balance out all the spooky horror stuff with a little bit of a funny haha so if you guys have any recommendations of anything funny and spooky please share with us we really love to hear those recommendations also if you like what you hear go on apple podcasts and give us a five-star rating and give us a little review we really appreciate we also have a patreon if you like what you hear help support us that way because Uh it takes a lot of time and effort to make a podcast and we want to give you the best quality 
podcast that we can give you. So help us help you. Help us help you. Yes. Our Patreon is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, also check us out on Instagram. We've actually been going live on Instagram live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific Mm -hmm. Standard Time. And if you like to, I don't know, listen in and give us some ghost stories that you have or give us some ideas of episodes that you'd like to hear, even just hang with us, have a bev. Have a bed and a little chat while, you know, we're in quarantine together. Join us at 7 p.m. on Pacific Standard Time on Sunday evenings on Instagram Live. Our Instagram is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. Mm-hmm. We also will post photos of the Dietlov Pass incident and the people involved on there. So stay tuned for that. We also have a Facebook page. It is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. And we have a Twitter, Ghoulish podcast if you have any ghost stories that you want to share to possibly be featured on our episode we are accepting them uh via voice memos or voice recordings for the voice memos you can email them to us at gabby g-a-b-i at ghoulish tendencies.com having said that we also have our website ghoulish tendencies.com where you can listen to every single one of our episodes and see all of our show notes and references cool thanks for listening Yeah. Stay safe in your quarantine. Yeah. And 